0: Warning! Although today's story evokes children's literature, it may be difficult for young children and adults who've lost children. I recommend parents take a listen before lending this story to younger ears.
1: Podcastle, number 16, for July 15, 2008.
0: Magnificent Pigs by Kat Rambo. Hello, this is Rachel Swirsky, Podcastle's editor. A friend of mine recently bought her 11 year old daughter a book of children's stories. They settled down to read together. My friend picked out a story from an author she liked and began to read aloud. As she went on, she grew more and more concerned. This story was grim. This story was gruesome. A whole troop of camping children were eaten by a vicious monster, which teased and threatened the protagonist before letting him go. But her daughter continued listening with every sign of enjoyment, and they went on to the end. Afterward, my friend asked, what did you think of that story? It was funny, her daughter said. Funny? Yeah? Because at the beginning, one of the kids took a picture of another kid's butt. Adults and kids sometimes have very different ways of seeing the world. We find something disturbing, they find it funny. We find something inspirational, they find it boring. For me, as an adult, the book Charlotte's Web is disturbing. I mean, think about it. You're following a sentient pig, and people are talking about killing and eating him. And then the other main character, the spider, dies. As an adult, I can see it as inspirational as well. The spider and the pig outwit powerful humans so that Wilbur can live, and then at the end we see the cycle of regrowth with the birth of Charlotte's baby spiders. But that's adult logic. There are other ways of thinking about the story. Today's podcast will kid and adult logic together in Magnificent Pigs by Cat Rambo, a slanted look at E.B. White's Charlotte's Web. Cat Rambo's fantasy and science fiction short stories have appeared in magazines like Asimov's, Strange Horizons, and Clark's World. One of her stories, The Dead Girl's Wedding March, which is scheduled to appear later in Podcastle, appears in her collaboration with Jeff Vandermeer, The Surgeon's Tale and Other Stories, available from her website and Amazon.com. Magnificent Pigs first appeared in Strange Horizons. It's read for us by Matthew Wayne Selznick, an author, musician, podcaster, and evangelist for the do-it-yourself ethic. His first book, Brave Men Run: A Novel of the Sovereign Era, is available from Swarm Press. He's presented several podcasts, including the MWS Media Radio Show podcast, 5 Minute Memoir, Writers Talking, and Sanatorium. Links in this introduction can be found online at podcastle.org. Enjoy the story.
2: Magnificent Pigs by Cat Rambo the spring before it happened, I went upstairs and found my ten-year-old sister, Jilly, crying. Charlotte's web, which we'd been reading together at bedtime all that week, lay splayed, broken-backed, on the floor where she'd thrown it. What's wrong? I said, hovering in the doorway. As Jilly kept getting sicker, I tried to offer her the illusion of her own space, but remained ready. I was reading ahead because I liked it so much, and Charlotte dies! She managed to gasp between sobs. The big brass bed creaked in protest as I sat down beside her. Gathering her into my arms, I rocked her back and forth. It was well past sunset, and the full-faced moon washed into the room, spilling across the blue rag rug like milk and gleaming on the bed knobs so that they looked like balls of icy light, brighter than the dim glow of Jilly's bedside lamp. It's a book, Jilly. Just a book, I said. She shook her head, cheeks blotched red and wet with tears. But Aaron, Charlotte's dead, she choked out again. I retrieved the book from the middle of the room and set it in front of her. Look, I said, if we open the book up again at the beginning, Charlotte's alive. She'll always be alive in the book. The sobs quieted to hiccups, and she reached for the book, looking dubious. When she opened it to the first chapter, I began to read. "'Where's Papa going with that axe? said Fern to her mother as they were setting the table for breakfast. "'Out to the hog-house,' replied Mrs. Arable. "'Some pigs were born last night.' Curling against me, she let me read the first two chapters. After she slipped away to sleep, I tucked the blanket around her, then went downstairs to cry my own tears. My father and mother were farmers. They had been raised by farmers who had themselves been raised by farmers, and so on, back to biblical days. They saw my talent for drawing only as a hobby until the age of seventeen, when I proposed that my major in college be an uneasy mixture of art and agriculture. They were dubious, but they were also good-natured sorts, Jilly takes after them, who only wanted the best for me. So they sent me, eldest of their two children, off to Indiana University. Jilly, A late arrival to the family was almost six years old at that point and consumed most of their attention, which I did not begrudge her. From the day she was born, she was a tiny, perfect addition to our household, and I loved her. Three years later, on a rainy September afternoon, my parents died in a car accident, and I returned home to the farm to take care of Jilly. A few townfolk felt I shouldn't be allowed to raise her by myself, but when I hit 21 a year later, that magic number at which you apparently become an adult. They stopped fussing. The insurance settlement provided enough to live on. It wasn't a lot, but I supplemented it by raising pigs and apples in the way my parents always had and taking them to Indianapolis. There, the pigs were purchased by a plant that makes organic bacon, pork, and sausage, and the apples by a cider mill. I didn't mind the farm work. I'd get up in the morning, take care of things and find myself a few hours in the afternoon to work in my barn stall studio. A year ago, Jilly started getting stomach aches so bad they had her doubled over and crying. When I first took her to the hospital, they diagnosed it as Crohn's disease. Six months later, after I'd learned the vocabulary of aminosalicylates and corticosteroids and immunomodulators, they switched to a simpler word, cancer. Insurance covered the medical bills didn't cover much else, so I laid aside my art and bought some more pigs. I had to hire a nurse to take care of Jilly whenever I couldn't. I wanted someone with her all the time. I didn't want her lonely or unable to help herself. At first, I hired a chilly but competent woman, Miss Anderson. She was expensive, but I figured she was worth it. I had a crazy idea that I'd use my talent to become a tattoo artist and make enough extra cash to pay her. A superior mobile tattoo set from eBay cost me a 100 bucks and got me started. I named my enterprise Magnificent Pigs, in honor of Wilbur. But tattoos aren't a high-demand item in Travisville, and you need to practice a lot to get any good at it. Once I'd run out of old high school friends who were willing to let me work on them in the name of a free tattoo, I turned to the pigs. It's not as cruel as it sounds, I swear. According to the vet, pig skin is tough as nails and doesn't have a lot of nerve endings. He sells me cartons of a topical anesthetic lotion that I use beforehand, just in case. And the pigs have never objected. They're placid beasts. Give them a bowl of mash, and they don't care what you do. My dad believed in playing classical music to calm the animals, so I crank Beethoven cello suites to hide the buzz of the needle and go to town. The first time I took a tattooed pig to the slaughterhouse, they gave me odd looks when they saw where I'd inscribed Mother, Semper Fi, and... Tattooing gets pretty boring after a while in blue and red and black on the leathery white skin, but as long as it didn't mark the meat, it was okay. I didn't realize my dreams of becoming a brand-name tattoo artist, no matter how many coiling koi and serpents I covered the pigs with. Southern Indiana is a conservative place, and very few people came out for tattoos. I liked the business because it made me feel like an artist, but I didn't really have any customers. Eventually, I had to let Miss Anderson go, promising I'd have her back wages for her within six months. She wasn't happy about it, but had a good contract with the nursing home waiting for her, so she let it slide. Jilly was happy to see her depart, but didn't tell me till weeks later about the meanness that had revealed itself when tending a hapless ten-year-old. She was just mean, Jilly said. She never touched you, did she? I asked cautiously. No, not like that. She pinched me a few times, but mostly she just said mean things. Like what a shame it was that I was an orphan and how you'd probably get rid of me when you got married. I looked at her, but her face was clear and unworried. It didn't bother you, Jilly? I asked. I knew you'd always take care of me. Which was all fine and well, but even so, Miss Anderson's departure made it feel as though things were pressing in on all sides. Nightmares lapped at my sleep all that night. The next day... Strung out on caffeine and weariness, I stood in the cramped grocery store aisle looking at a vista of jams and sandwich spreads and couldn't decide between crunchy and smooth because I literally couldn't remember which jilly or I preferred. I must have stood there for ten minutes. See, one of the side effects of the disease is nausea and loss of appetite. Peanut butter is one of the few things jilly will eat and it's high in protein, so it's important to bring home the right one. There's a wide variety of peanut butter labels. I stood there, looking at Jif and Skippy and Peter Pan and Kroger brand, going through the same loop in my head over and over. No, I think I like crunchy and Jilly likes smooth, but maybe it's the other way around, and what other groceries do we need but first crunchy or smooth? While this frenzied loop continued, I became aware that a woman in her cart had been circling me, going back and forth in the aisle and warding off other shoppers. The music on the store intercom switched from one piano piece to another. Finally, she stopped beside me. Buy them both, she advised, and it broke the spell that held me there helpless. I turned and looked at her. She was an elderly woman dressed in black, a blue and white scarf bound around her hair to hold it in place. She had an enormous beak-like nose and bright black eyes that glittered at me as though daring me to rebuff her. It was Mrs. Huber, whose husband had died a few years before. I don't know why she stuck in Bedford. She had, and was an object of some curiosity, being the town's only Jew. Jilly and I were doubly outsiders, not only the children of the town misfits, but also the family of an invalid. Thank you, I said, and took down two jars. She stood beside me, and it didn't feel awkward at all, like we were family who had just happened to meet there and would see each other again at dinner. She said, The little girl needs a nurse, no? Yeah, she does, I said. I gestured at the shelves of peanut butter okay, though. I just got a little sidetracked, that's all. We stared at each other for a while. My only other encounter with Mrs. Huber had been selling her peanut brittle when I was in the sixth grade and trying to win a trip to Washington in the school candy drive. I found out later she bought candy from every kid that approached her, with three grades selling, ten to fifteen kids in each class. That must have been a substantial pile of peanut brittle. She didn't look too much older now, the lines around her eyes were more defined, and her lips drooped at a harsher angle. Finally, she said, simply, You need a nurse, too, maybe. And after that, we came to an agreement. Julie loved her like a mother. I got fond of her myself. There was a certain irony to a Jew living on a pig farm, particularly with a tattoo artist. She didn't keep kosher, so she ate with us each night, although she'd never touch pork. I cooked any pork chops, or sausage, or bacon, or other variants of pig meat. But most of the time, I left it to her to cook. She coaxed Jilly's tender appetite with blintzes and rugula, kugel and Kreplock. The kitchen took on a constant shimmer of cinnamon that was a pleasant change from TV dinners. After supper, we'd sit in the parlor, Jilly watching TV or reading, while I studied up on farming or tattooing methods, and Mrs. H. knitted. She turned out shawls, scarves, baby blankets, and a multitude of sweaters for Jilly, with patterns of pigs or flowers. Jilly's favorite was the one with her name knitted into the front. She'd scold me for working too hard, and when I came in bone-weary from a day of fretting over pig vaccines or Jilly's latest series of tests, she'd say in her harsh accent, "'Worries go down better with soup.'" Sometimes I thought that God had sent her by way of apology. I don't want to make it sound like everything was fine, but it wasn't as bad as it could be, at least for a while. I was practicing on one of the pigs, writing out words, when Jilly came into the barn and leaned on the bench near me. It was early spring warm. By now we were long past recognizing the smell of pig shit. Sometimes I forgot that it clung like an invisible film to my clothing until I noticed people edging away from me in stores. The other smells weren't hidden by the omnipresent odor, the sour redolence of corn mash, the fresh tang of the straw underfoot, the distant sweetness of apple blossom coming in through the window. What are you doing? Jilly asked. Practicing writing words, I said. What's that? she said, pointing to a passage of text on the pig's rounded back. It's the first verse of Stairway to Heaven. Nice. It was the only poetry I could remember off the top of my head, I said. She sat there watching me, so I started tattooing the words that Charlotte used to describe Wilbur onto the pig's broad back. When I reached Magnificent, she giggled, just as Mrs. H called us in to dinner. She went ahead while I cleaned off my needles. She asked me at dinner, Don't we have any runts that we could keep, like Wilbur? Jilly, we can't afford to keep them as pets, I said. She couldn't have a cat or dog because of allergies, not to mention my own fears about compromising her immune system. She started to protest, and I cut her off. That's final. But that night, after Jilly was asleep, Mrs. H said to me, Maybe you should give her pig for a pet. We can't afford it. She looked at me. Her eyes sad. I think she might be gone before the pig gets sent off. She's getting better, I said. Look at how she chattered all through dinner. But she was right, and we both knew it. When one must, one can, she said in a gentle voice. The next morning dawned hard and bright, and it seemed inevitable that after a long night's birthing, one of the pregnant sows had six perfect piglets surrounding her in the straw. I took Jilly out to look at them and told her to pick one. It has to be the runt, she said. And then, but they're all the same size. I looked at her, leaning on the railing with her gawky, bird-like arms, so thin that she could wear rubber bands for bracelets, and felt a hard lump in my throat. Take them all, Jilly, I said. They'll all be your pigs. She named them Celeste, Patience, Rutabaga, Bill, Princess Splendid, and, predictably, Wilbur. Mrs. H. professed to hate men. Trif, she said and spat whenever they were mentioned, but I noticed her assembling leftovers for Jilly to feed them. Jilly spent hours by the pen, wrapped in a blanket and watching the piglets with an expression of beatific joy. They came to know her as well and would come when she called. She spent enough time petting them that I got in the habit of spraying them down with a hose in the mornings and evenings to cut down on the amount of pig smell that ended up clinging to her. The mother pig remained unmoved by Jilly's appreciation of her young, but when the piglets were napping, piled on each other like puppies, tiny tails swishing like sporadic windshield wipers, both she and Jilly beamed down at them with identical expressions. The piglets grew fast, prancing around the yard like women in high heels, stealing bits of food from Jilly's hand. And all the while my baby sister diminished, curled in on herself as though she were becoming a little old woman as though each day the cancer claimed another morsel of her frail form, making her lighter and lighter. At some point soon, it would win and take her away from us. Jilly's pigs were fat and fine, sleek as colts and almost full-grown, when I came home one day to find her weeping even harder than she had for Charlotte, while Mrs. H fussed around her. What happened? I demanded. Is she in pain? That very bad woman, Mrs. H said. She came by to speak to you, Mr. Aaron, about her money. Such a tongue in her head should rot. What did she say? It was Miss Anderson. I told her that I was going to school next year, Jilly said. She clung to me, and hot tears soaked my neck, because by then I would be better. And she laughed and said I'd be better when pigs grow wings and fly. Is it true, Aaron? Am I not going to get better? Am I going to die? No, no, I said, clutching her to me. No, Jilly, you are going to school next year. Mrs. H. regarded me. We'd had this argument before. She thought I should tell Jilly, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't let her know she was dying. That would make it too real. No, I said, and pressed a kiss onto the top of her head. It's all right, Jilly. It will be all right. She let herself be comforted. But all through that evening, I felt myself angrier and angrier at Mrs. Anderson's words. Going outside, I looked at Jilly's pigs. Fat and happy while my sister lay inside, wasting away. I went inside and fetched my tattoo kit. I was tired, but too angry to sleep, and I could tell I'd be up for hours. Mrs. H. came out and waved goodbye to me as she revved her tiny Civic and drove away, her headlights cutting swathes in the darkness of the farm road. Overhead, the stars were bright and distinct in the fathomless sky. I opened the door to the pen, and Jilly's tame pigs followed me into the barn. I set up shop in an abandoned stall, and when I was finished with one pig, it would walk out to the others to be inspected proprietarily while another came in. I gave them wings. It was the finest work I'd ever done. For Celeste, there were a phoenix's wings, flame bright and coiling with red and yellow. A dove's wings fluttered on patient's skin, muted in browns and grays that showed like bruises against the white hide. A blue jay's wings for rutabaga, a vivid, iridescent blue striped with black. Bill got green wings like a parrot's, touched with scarlet and indigo at the tips. Princess splendids were gold and silver, a metallic sheen that reflected light and cast it across the pen and Wilbur had black wings, black as night, black as death. It took hours as they stood patiently beneath the buzzing needle, letting me etch the lines into their skin, wiping away the blood that welled up beneath the needle And When I was done, I was so tired I couldn't even stand instead. I sat there on my stool, looking at them. One by one, they circled in front of me. The inspection of the pigs by the artist, I thought, half asleep. I debated going to sleep where I sat, or somehow, impossibly, hauling myself up the stairs and into my own bed. I watched the pigs shuffle around each other and admired my bright-inked creations on their backs, and I found myself dreaming. I dreamed that I sat there watching while Wilbur went to the door and nosed it open, and pigs slipping out into the yard and making their way to the house, where Wilbur repeated his performance, and one by one they slipped inside the door. And then I shook myself awake and stumbled to my feet. The door was wide open, and the pigs were gone, so I scrambled out to the yard to see it empty as well. Up on Jilly's balcony, movement caught my eye, and the French doors shuttered open. A shadow lifted from the balcony, an impossible, boxy shadow that floated across the sky, blocking out the clouds that outlined it in pearly tones. As the moonlight struck it, I saw what it was. Jilly's brass bed, the frame supported on either side by three flying pigs. Their wings beat the air in tandem while she sat upright, her face filled with wonder and delight as she gazed forward. Did she wave? I'm not sure. Because clouds obscured the view as she rose higher and higher into the sky. I'd like to think that she didn't, that she knew Mrs. H and I would take care of each other, and that she didn't need to look back. I like to think that every inch of her attention was focused on the journey, on that marvelous moment when we both learned that pigs could fly.
1: Episode number 14, Hillary Moon Murphy's The Grand Cheat, proved very popular. I usually try to include a variety of opinions when I read feedback, but comments that weren't compliments tended to be about small things from listeners who otherwise enjoyed the story. Mr. Khanna's reading prompted a few commenters to ask us to have him read more stories. On the blog, Evergreen said, That was a really cool story. It's funny, it reminded me in many ways of stories from the Arabian Nights. This is definitely my favorite podcastle so far. Yi-Ching said, I enjoyed every part of this story. It was unique, well-paced, captivating, and well-read. I am very thankful that the narrator did not choose to read in a faux Hindi accent. Celtic goddess said, I bet the Ferengi will claim ownership of this one, just as the Klingons have with Hamlet. On the board, Ragtime told us that she loves this type of story, and added, This one was great. If I were the main character, though, I think I would have done it all backwards. I mean, the daughter seemed to be in much more dire straits than the son, who was just poor, so I would have helped her out first. But I loved the concept, and it all fit together very cleanly. Ka said, There's something satisfying about playing strictly within the rules and yet completely overturning them at the same time while simultaneously trapping a god into doing your bidding. Swamp asked for assistance finding more Hillary Moon Murphy stories, and the author herself stepped up with the information. That's one of the cool things about message boards, the way they make communication so easy. If you've got something to communicate, come visit us at forum.escapeartists.info. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons Attribution non-commercial no-derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend or post your blog about it or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. The time has come, the walrus said, to talk of many things, of shoes and ships and sealing wax and cabbages and kings, and why the sea is boiling hot and whether pigs have wings.